Today's reading comes from Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, and we'll be reading from verse 7 to 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house. And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother.
Thanks be to God. Good morning, Trinity Church. It is good to be with you again, and um, I look forward to being in God's Word this morning. Just before we do that, though, uh, let me just say something about next week. Obviously, this morning, some of us are meeting physically at, the, at 48 Gordon Road, and uh, we hope that that will be able to continue. We hope to be also to be able to add the kids' ministry to it next week. And so that is what we're intending to do, and um, we hope that you will be able to join us. So perhaps just watch the space a little bit for, um, for news during the week. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get into Mark chapter 3. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for Mark's gospel, for the things that we have been discovering about your Son, our King Jesus. And we pray that this morning you would teach us again, would you speak to our, not just our minds, but to our hearts, and move us towards a, a, a deeper devotion to him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't claim to be any kind of social commentator, uh, but one thing <clears throat> that is noticeable to me uh, about the human race is that we prefer to be included in things and not excluded. I know, it's rocket science stuff, really. <clears throat> We'd rather be uh, on the inside of things, particularly good things, and not left out of them. So from the earliest times in our lives, we have worked pretty hard to get on the inside, and perhaps the first place we did it was on the playground as uh, kids were choosing teams. Uh, you know the situation. You, uh, you wanted to be chosen early. You know, that was important. And you wanted to be on the good team, also important. And so the important thing to do was, you know, some eye contact with the kid choosing, um, maybe work the hand a little bit, move the body perhaps, you know, draw some attention to yourself. And, um, and we've been doing that ever since then in other ways, in multiple different areas. I remember wanting to make a good impression on Lisa's family when I was first invited to Sunday lunch there. You know, I wanted to make inroads into that, into that family. But um, instead, I somehow managed to kick the beloved family dog on my first, first visit, uh, Macintosh went howling across the lounge floor, drawing attention uh, to himself, to me, and, um, and I think it was a bit touch and go for a while there with Lisa's family. We all want to be in and not out, whether it's a sports team or a circle of friends, uh, a good place to work, a better neighborhood or a good school for our kids. And you know, the Bible has something to say about all that. It says that we are all thinking way too small. We have all set the bar way too low. Because it says there is one community that just skyrockets above all the others, there is one place that you absolutely want to have to make sure that you are in the, on the inside of. And it is so much better than all of the others that we are spending our time and energy on. It's not a, it's not a golden circle at a rock concert. <clears throat> Remember those? It's not the board of a successful company. 
It's not a gated community in a plush suburb. No, the only place that you want to make sure you are in is the kingdom of God, the community of Jesus. The thing about the kingdom of God is that it promises and it delivers so much more than all those other things that we, we spend so much time chasing after. Not just a circle of friends to feel comfortable with over the next few decades, but a perfect, perfect relationships uh, for eternity. Not just a safe place for your physical body at night, <clears throat> but security for your everlasting soul. Not just a boosted ego at being one of the select few for this moment, but the satisfying and never-ending love of your heavenly Father. The kingdom of God, uh, the community of Jesus, makes everything, makes every other place, every other community, every other family pale by comparison, which is why Jesus urged us all to seek it first and then to trust God with all of those lesser things. Now, it is exactly that kingdom that Jesus came announcing at the beginning of Mark's gospel. His first quoted words in chapter 1 are, the kingdom of God is near. And then he went on to give all the evidences of the arrival of that kingdom, which the Old Testament had promised would happen. Uh, diseases being healed, demons being cast out of people, even death being reversed. See, Mark wants us to know that Jesus is the one who has brought God's kingdom into our world. He is the one establishing a new community and making it accessible to all. And so the obvious question for anyone reading this passage or hearing Jesus' words is, how do we get a place? How do we get in on this new community of Jesus's? And the answer, which will need some fleshing out, is that entry into this community has everything to do with Jesus himself. It has everything to do with how we respond to Jesus. That is going to be the make or break of the situation. And we've already seen quite a spectrum of, of responses to Jesus in Mark's gospel. Today we're going to see a whole lot more. Lately we've seen a lot of hostility towards Jesus, a lot of rejection. But in our passage this morning we'll see that that, that does nothing to stop Jesus <clears throat> from what he has come to do. But that hostility, that rejection, has a very sobering effect on, um, on whether those people will end up inside or outside of his kingdom. And that's going to be an important lesson for us to, to learn this morning, to be reminded of this morning. So as we work through these verses, won't you see two big things that Jesus is doing? And the first is this. We see the unstoppable Jesus establishing God's new community. In verse 7, Jesus withdraws to the lake, uh, perhaps because he's tired and needing some rest, perhaps because of all the opposition he's been facing, and the, um, the temperature in the room has gotten just a little bit too much. He wants it to drop a little bit, so he heads off to the lake. If it is rest that he's after, he certainly doesn't get it. Mark tells us that the crowds follow him. Not just from Galilee, which was his own region, but from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, the regions across Jordan, around Tyre and Sidon. You see, Jesus has become a sensation. 
Uh, his fame is spreading much further than the fame of John the Baptist. If you remember, he got crowds from Jerusalem and Judea. But Jesus is making headlines well beyond the borders of Israel. Uh, and the crowds, are, they're just flocking to him from all over. And not only that, Jesus is also making waves in the underworld. Mark says in verse 11 that whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell anyone about him. Now, we've already seen these things happen. Uh, demons being cast out, diseases being healed. Uh, we've seen exa individual examples of these back in chapter 1 and 2. So why is Mark putting all of this here again at the beginning of chapter 3? Well, it's going to help us to remember the immediate context. Uh, just before this, we saw a string of encounters uh, where the tide of opposition is swelling against Jesus. And that opposition is coming from the most powerful section of society, from the religious leaders. And last week, we saw them peppering Jesus with questions. Um, <clears throat> and their hostility, their opposition, really climaxes in chapter 3, verse 6, just before our passage began where they go out together to plot to kill Jesus. And if you were reading this for the first time, you would be forgiven for thinking, you know, Jesus is done for, man, this is a bad situation. But then we get to the beginning of our passage, these verses, verses 13 to 19. And we see that Jesus is still doing what he's always been doing. He's still popular. In fact, he is wildly more popular than ever before. His fame is spreading everywhere. And he's still powerful. Diseases are still fleeing from him. Demons are sent packing. It is as if Mark is giving us another little reminder as to where real power actually lies. He's saying to us, did you think that Jesus' enemies were getting the upper hand? Don't be so fooled. And we can ask the same questions uh, as we survey our world today, you know. Does it look to you as though the world has been overcome by evil, overpowered? As you read the, uh, the ghastly headlines sometimes, do you worry about where it is all headed and whether there'll be, there's any sort of control or any pullback from, from the extent of it all? Whether there will ever be any justice or restoration from, from the evil that's happened. Well, Mark says, don't let yourselves be fooled. Even now, every disease that plagues our world has a shelf life. Uh, even, the, even now, the underworld knows that its days are numbered. Jesus has never, not once, been halted in what he was doing. His unstoppable mission continues. And we see the next phase of that mission in verse 13. We see Jesus uh, going up a mountainside. And there's a noticeable change uh, in the flow of action, the direction of action, if you like. No more people pushing forward to try and get to Jesus and touch him. Instead, we see the irresistible pull of Jesus. We see him with all the initiative, calling to himself those he wanted and they come to him. And that is how it is. And not just with apostles, 
which we'll see uh, in a moment was a unique calling. This is how it works with everyone who comes into Christ's kingdom. Uh, if you are a Christian today, it is because God knew you long before you knew him. It's because he set his love on you long before you ever uh, thought to return it. It is a truth to make us really humble because uh, left to myself, I would have just kept on choosing a path away from God in my sin. And it's a truth to make us really thankful that God would take the initiative and reach out to you and me and bring us back into relationship, loving relationship uh, with him. Now, the calling of these apostles <clears throat> was a um, unique and special event. The way that Mark tells the story, really, it, it should ring some Old Testament bells for us. Um, twelve leaders, just like the twelve tribes of Israel, drawn together on a mountainside, just like Israel was done at the foot of Mount Sinai with Moses. Mark wants us to see what Jesus is doing here. Off the back of Israel's rejection, he is doing something new. As we saw last week with the parable of the wine and the wineskins, the new wine and the new wineskins, Jesus is establishing a new community. He chooses the apostles whose job will be to go out and to preach the good news of the kingdom uh, alongside him. And they will also be given the same power to show people that that kingdom is in fact coming it is the power to cast out demons. It's a special appointment, uh, which will require special training. And that's what they get in verse 14. We're told that, that Jesus appointed 12, that they may be with him. See, from now on, Jesus will invest himself mainly in these 12 men. They'll go with him where he goes. They'll listen to his every word. Uh, they'll learn his ways. So that when the time comes for him to leave the world, they'll be ready to lead God's new community. And it's noticeable, isn't it, um, just how ordinary these men were. I mean, we don't know much about them. In fact, there are some that we, we only know their names. Um, but what we know of the others suggests that they were nothing spectacular. You know, No great learning amongst them, um, for, for fishermen uh, amongst them. Uh, no great standing in society. One of them was a, a dregs of society tax collector. No, no self-respecting HR manager would have put this lot together. You know, if this, is a, if this was an international soccer team being picked, this is, this is Coach Jesus looking past all the Ronaldos and the, and the Messies and um, selecting the guys from, um, from Marisburg United. It's a good reminder uh, that God has always used the ordinary and the unimpressive to get his kingdom work done. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it's not the wise, not the influential, not those of noble birth, but the foolish and the weak. That is who God uses. That is how God works. Even today, as he puts you and me into positions, and as he gives us opportunities that we feel thoroughly unqualified to carry out. It's a reminder which I so often am so slow to catch on to about where the real power lies. It is with the unstoppable Jesus who in the face of Israel's opposition um, and rejection 
established a new community for those who would humble themselves and come to him uh, in repentance and faith. Now, 12 men uh, looks pretty small and unimpressive, and and it was. Um, But you and I have the benefit of looking back over 2,000 years and seeing how God has preserved and protected this community, uh, which is no longer little. It has now grown considerably. We have the privilege of seeing how those apostles who were equipped by Jesus and then strengthened by his Spirit would be the foundation for what the Apostle Peter calls a spiritual house, a house which continues to be built through the centuries and even today, built living stone by living stone. What a privilege for you and I to be drawn into that spiritual house, to be one of those living stones added to this new community, a community of very ordinary people, but of extraordinary blessing. So how can we be sure if we're not sure this morning, how can we be sure that we are built into this house, that we are a part of it, that we are a living stone? Well, the next two stories uh, that Mark tells help us with that. And uh, secondly, won't you see uh, that the rejected Jesus discloses who is in and out of God's new community? Well, Jesus is off the mountainside now, and he is in a house. Probably it's the same house he was in, uh, in the town of Capernaum, back in chapter 2. Once again, it's a crowded house. I imagine the owner was looking rather nervously at his recently repaired roof, listening out for any scratching sounds. Um, But this story won't go the same way that that one did, back in chapter 2. No, Mark tells us about Jesus' family, who, who, who isn't actually there, not even there. On this occasion but they have heard about what's going on with Jesus and they decided it's time to intervene I suppose you know they were getting all the news it was filtering back to, to Nazareth about Jesus's non-stop nomadic lifestyle about the miracles that he'd been doing about the controversial things that he had been teaching everyone and about the religious pot that he had been stirring And if verse 21 is anything to go by, well, Jesus' family believe he has gone too far. Mark says, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Now, those are strong words. His family want to get their hands on Jesus. They they want to bring him to his senses, it seems, put a stop to all this nonsense before it it ends embarrassingly for all of them, or, or, or even worse for them. And so they make the day trip from Nazareth to Capernaum. And then a slightly odd thing happens in Mark's telling of the story. As suddenly as he started talking about Jesus' family, he stops. And he starts telling us about another group of people. Uh, It's like he is a a news channel anchor, you know, and um, he's covering a story and he's got a whole bunch of reporters on the scene and he crosses from one to the other. He's going to come back to Jesus' family, uh, but for now he crosses live to a group of Pharisees uh, who have come from much further away. And we might want to ask ourselves, you know, why does Mark do this? Why does he interrupt his own story this way? And the answer is that he loved telling his story like this. Uh, he, he does it a few times throughout the gospel, and he, he sort of takes 
one story about Jesus and inserts it into another one because he has a point to make. And joining these two stories together is going to help him to really ram that point home. So we cross live to uh, the teachers of the law who have come all the way from Jerusalem. And the accusations coming out of their mouths are much more serious. It's interesting that they don't deny Jesus' power here. They are just trying to explain it away. And the explanation they resort to in verse 22, uh, sorry, is in verse 22. They say he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Accusations don't come more serious than this. And for the first time in the passage, we hear Jesus speak. He calls the teachers of the law over. And in verses 23 to 30, he says three things to them. And the first is simply to dismantle their poor logic. How can Satan drive out Satan, he says. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Well, that's just logic 101, isn't it? You know, if South Africa was to invade South Africa, pretty soon South Africa would collapse. Which is what would also happen to Satan's realm, says Jesus. No, a much more obvious explanation is that Satan is being overpowered by an enemy, a much stronger enemy. And that's the gist of the mini parable that he tells, Jesus tells in verse 27. He says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. You know, if you got, got it into your head to, to ransack Tendai the Beast Imtawarira's house, the first thing you would need to do is incapacitate the beast. Now, you know, you, you need to tie him to a chair, and then, well, you could help yourself to all of his stuff and make off. But let's face it, that first part of the deal is, uh, is a step too far for most of us. Most of us could not dominate the beast like that. You know, if you wanted to do that, you'd have to be someone much stronger. I don't know, someone like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Then the job is on again. And that's what Jesus says uh, is happening with Satan and his realm. No one standing around Jesus on that day would have denied that Satan was the strong man. Uh, the evidence could be seen in the lives around them that were ruined by demon possession. In our day, I think it is only, only people who deny that there's a spiritual realm who would deny uh, that Satan is a powerful figure. But Jesus knew very well that Satan is real and that he's powerful, but he also knew that Satan was no match for him, the stronger man. He had come into this world to tie Satan up and then to ransack his house, which is what we see him doing every time he rescues a demon-possessed person from Satan's realm. See, this parable is really such a comfort uh, to us, especially to those of us who worry um, about the demonic realm. You know, whether we've had a brush with it in the past or, or perhaps if our family is still interacting with the spirit world, Jesus assures us this morning that there is no evil power that is greater than his good power. And if you've taken refuge in him as your king, well, you can be sure that he protects you by the power of his indwelling spirit. It is good news for all of us uh, who have despaired at the evil which seems to 
overwhelm our world. You know, if we're tempted to think that evil is winning the day as, as we read those ghastly headlines, or perhaps because of some terrible experience that we have had ourselves, we might despair. But the Bible assures us that Jesus has not just tied Satan up. No, he has disarmed and defeated him when he went to the cross to die for our sins. And he has assigned him a place in the eternal fire of God's judgment. And that will be the end of it. It is very good news for us. Now the third thing that Jesus says in verses 23 to 30 uh, it takes the form of a warning. Take a look at it uh, with me from verse 28 and 29. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now those words have caused a lot of Christians to worry in the past, uh, perhaps that they have committed this unforgivable sin. Perhaps that has been your worry. Uh, perhaps it still is your worry from time to time. But the way to understand what's going on here is to look more closely at the context. Right? Mark tells us in verse 30 that Jesus said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. In other words, they were seeing the good things that Jesus was doing um, by the power of the Holy Spirit in him. And instead of marveling at his wonderful power, they were putting him in the same camp as Satan. Uh, they were calling good evil. And these weren't, uh, you know, just off-the-cuff accusations from them, uh, which they might feel bad about later. No, no, these were people who had stubbornly refused opportunity after opportunity to turn to Jesus as king. Just a chapter ago, Jesus had claimed the authority to forgive sin. Uh, but now he says that the one kind of sin he will never forgive is an ongoing, unrelenting rejection of him as God's king, as God's spirit-empowered king. And so verse 29 is a sober warning to all who find themselves in that boat. People whose stubborn rejection of Jesus is settling in deeper and deeper and deeper. But if you are someone who worries that you might have committed this unforgivable sin, well, that worry in itself is a good indication that this isn't you. Someone who is sorry for their sins, troubled by their sins, should instead find comfort in verse 28. You can be forgiven for all your sins and for every slander that you have uttered. And with that, Mark crosses back live to the family of Jesus. They've arrived in Capernaum, and in verse 31, they are standing outside the house. They send a message in to bring Jesus out. And I wonder if his reply in verses 33 and 34 made you feel just a little bit uncomfortable. He says, Who are my brother, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now you would think that if anyone can bank on access to Jesus, it would be his biological family, right? 
his mother and his brothers. But with these words said to these disciples or said to this crowded room, Jesus warns the world that access to him, inclusion in his family, in his community, into his kingdom doesn't depend on the criteria that we might expect. It's not about family ties. It's not about a religious track record. It is not about geographical proximity or cultural similarities. In our own context, Jesus would say, it is not about growing up in a Christian family. It is not about having been baptized as a baby and then maybe confirmed as a, um, as a teenager. It's not even about coming along to church every Sunday and, and setting out the chairs each week. It is also not about agreeing with the moral code of Jesus and trying your best to live up to it. All of those things can have the effect of making us think that we have some, some kind of claim on Jesus. Well, look at me, Lord. Look at, look at my track record. Now, now, surely you owe me some kind of acceptance, some kind of inclusion. But Jesus would say, you're not on the inside yet. Not because of any of those things. Actually, you are standing with his biological family on the outside still of his kingdom. More soberingly, you are in the same camp as those religious leaders and their blasphemous accusations. You see, the reason that Mark puts these two stories together is to show us that all rejection of Jesus is the same. Whether we shake our fists at him and accuse him violently or viciously, or we set ourselves up against him quite respectably, um, you know, we say, come on, Jesus, you're going too far now. You know, this is more reasonable. It is all the same. All rejection is the same. And it all puts us outside of the room, outside of the family, outside of the community, outside of his kingdom. So what does it take then to come in? Well, according to verse 34, we need to be found at the feet of Jesus, listening to his words, doing the will of God, which translated means we need to have turned our lives over to him and to his authority. The amazing thing is that being included in the family and the community, the kingdom of Jesus, is not hard. It couldn't be easier, actually. There is no work that we need to do. Jesus has done the impossible work of paying for our sins at the cross and securing our forgiveness. All we need to do is respond to that call that he makes right at the beginning of Mark's gospel when he says the kingdom is near. Remember what he followed that with? He said, repent and believe the good news. You see, when we do that, once we have entrusted our lives to his sovereign care, we will find that um, we ourselves are in a close and loving relationship with him. Our experience um, of Christianity will become less a sort of grudging, box-ticking exercise that we need to do and then get on with the rest of our lives. No, it'll become something um, joyful, something <clears throat> relational, 
We'll love to hear the wise and gracious words of our King as we open up the Bible. We'll be listening for them. And we will gratefully put them into practice, which is not to say that it will be easy, but we will see without doubt that this is the best way to live. Um, it comes from a loving and gracious King. We'll be there, like those disciples were, sitting at the feet of Jesus, doing his will, safely on the inside of the only community that really matters. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to close with a song. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that his mission is not derailed in any way by our opposition. We thank you that he came and established a new community and invites us in. And we thank you that entry in one sense is easy. He calls us simply to put our trust in him, to hand over the reins of our lives to him, and then to know that you have done everything necessary for us to be there. And so I pray, Lord, that if there are those amongst us who still need to, to entrust our lives to the authority of Jesus, that you would help them to think about that this morning and to do it. And I pray for those of us who have already done it, that we would be comforted and drawn closer into a loving relationship where it is a joyful thing to do your will. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.